You're listening to the latest episode of Schneps Connects, and I'm your host, Josh Schneps. New York City and the entire state were and continue to be significantly impacted by COVID, both from a health and economic point of view. We all hope that a vaccine is coming within the next few months, but the end of the pandemic in many ways will be just the beginning of the revival of the economy, particularly in New York City. So touch on the topic of business and the economy. We have a great guest, Catherine Wall with us today, who is an internationally known expert in housing, economic development, and urban policy. She is the current president and CEO of the nonprofit Partnership for New York City, the city's leading business organization founded by David Rockefeller in 1979. Catherine, welcome and thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Josh. So I'd love to start off by just having you share with our audience a little bit about yourself and your career in economic development. Well, thank you. I've been a New Yorker. I came from Madison, Wisconsin originally, but I've been a New Yorker since 1968. So I've been through a number of New York crises during my career. I started out in community work in uh, working for a community hospital in Brooklyn, Sunset Park, Lutheran Medical Center then, today NYU Brooklyn, and uh, spent uh, 12 years there, got into the housing movement, the community development movement of the 70s, and then uh, in 1981, when David Rockefeller was launching the partnership, he wanted to include the rebuilding of New York City's neighborhoods with homeownership housing, and I went to work for him as one of the first employees of the Partnership for New York City to develop that housing program. And we worked over the past over a n- past number of years in the housing arena first, and then I went into economic development, uh, working on investment fund that the partnership developed, and I became CEO of the partnership at the end of 2000. So talk about full circle, becoming the CEO and president after starting off there. That's what happens with women. Ask your mother. (laughs) She knows she won't (laughs) stop till she gets to the top. It's a long road, but we get there eventually. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Well, just share the New York City Partnership's mission and, and what your greatest focus is currently. So our mission is the success of the city as a, an urban center, as a commercial center, as an innovation center, and as, as the place with the greatest opportunity in the world. Just like I came here and uh, you know many people come here, uh, some are born here, but lots come here and we all appreciate the opportunities New York City offers us, I think. It's a great place for energetic, ambitious, Uh, people that have some fire in the belly to make a difference. So during, I think you touched on this a little bit, but during your career, you've seen New York City through many economic cycles. And, you know, for those who are younger, they may not know New York during a tough economic period. I mean, if you think about it, a lot of the college graduates didn't see the fall of uh, the World Trade Center, which was a horrible incident in the city. So I would love for you to share how you would compare this moment that we're in right now going through this pandemic to other major downturns, both in terms of its severity and ability to recover, obviously, economically speaking. Well, clearly the impact of the pandemic has been more complex and more serious than anything we have gone through in modern history. The health impacts are part of that. The economic impacts 
are of course devastating and we're only beginning to feel the economic impacts. So that's gonna, that's gonna roll out. If I were to compare it, it reminds me most of what I saw in the early years of the 1970s, where we suddenly had, we lost a million people who vacated the city. We lost half our Fortune 500 companies. We had the value of property disappeared. We had massive abandonment in many neighborhoods of the city. The city government owned 60% of the real estate because they'd taken it in tax foreclosure. Wow. The city had a huge fiscal crisis as we are approaching today. We're not there yet, but it's likely that tax rolls are going to fall and tax revenues will be reduced. And as a result, the city will be struggling to continue to provide essential services. So I would say that that, that is closest to what happened to us. Uh, that crisis is the closest because if you take 9-11, if you take Sandy, in both cases, the federal government stepped in very quickly within a couple months to provide a substantial multi-billion dollar relief. It was, I think it was 23 billion after 9-11. It was over for the region. It was over 60 billion ultimately for, in, uh, for New York, New Jersey after Sandy. So here we have had some very modest relief, a little bit, 3.9 billion for the MTA, and of course the individual aid, which is so important. But in terms of the city and state and the the challenge of dealing with the with the damage incurred, the lost revenues, the expenses associated with the health crisis, we've had very little federal support. And that's the biggest difference, I think, and something that hopefully is going to get ultimately corrected when the people in Washington quit fighting with each other and start to think about the rest of the country. Staggering when you bring up those numbers uh, compared to what happened versus where we are now. Yes. So the Partnership for New York City recently received a lot of publicity and coverage around uh, your report that was released in July, a call for action and collaboration, and the organization's letters that were signed by some of New York City's top business leaders that went out to uh, first Mayor de Blasio, then President Trump, then followed by de Blasio again and Cuomo. So the first letter was sent to Mayor de Blasio on September 10th. And just taking out a part of the letter, we need to send a strong, consistent message that our employees, customers, clients, and visitors will be coming back to a safe and healthy work environment. People will be slow to return unless their concerns about security and the livability of our communities are addressed quickly and with respect and fairness for our city's diverse populations. We urge you to take immediate action to restore essential services as a necessary precursor for solving the city's longer-term complex economic challenges. That's, that's just a part of the letter. So what specific actions did you want to see the mayor take that were under his purview? And which ones have or have not been addressed yet? So the, the letter was really uh, prompted by the fact that we had worked with 14 global consulting firms to try and spell out what we thought some of the impacts, the economic consequences of the COVID had been on New York City. And we published that report in, in mid-July. What are the consequences of the COVID? And then what are some recommendations for how the non-governmental and government sectors can work together 
to address these very large issues. And we, we tried to paint a realistic picture of you know, the health consequences, which people felt we were getting a handle on at that time, and hopefully, knock wood, we still are, but also the economic consequences that people really didn't understand. And so the COVID, the estimate is that it will take 13% of our economy, that it will ultimately this year, and this is in 2020, that it will cost us over half a million jobs that are not coming back. And that's as many as we gained over more than the last decade or more. So we're talking about a real severe, and most of the jobs that are lost are in small business. And those are jobs that are relatively low wage, low skilled jobs. And so there's a whole ripple effect of people who, who can't just go to work on a computer, who will need some kind of training and support. So the crisis of the COVID not only cost us a lot in terms of revenues and money and lost economic activity, but it's created huge new costs like remote education and like the training that's gonna have to go to support people getting being qualified to go to back to work because the COVID really accelerated by people say maybe 10, maybe 20 years, the digitization of our economy, the shift from brick and mortar to online activity. And they're just, there's so much in terms of the skills people have to develop to catch up. That's a huge challenge. So we published this report and honestly, we were trying to get everybody together around sort of the baseline of what's happened to us and what we have to do about it. And we made very clear that we thought public-private partnerships in a clear plan that people understood because people have lost confidence in themselves, in the city, in political leadership. There's a loss of confidence that has to be restored. And that's only gonna be restored if there's a clear vision for what we're gonna do and we're all gonna work together to implement that. And those were the ways we tackled Sandy. That's the way we tackled the recovery from 9-11 and the rebuilding effort. It was a clear plan. And the partnership actually issued a plan eight weeks after the 9-11 attack. And it was everyone mobilized around that plan. And it was the beginning of the recovery effort, which happened very quickly. So that's what we were really looking for. We were calling for in, in our report. It was delivered to the mayor before publication. And so far as I know, it was never read and no plan was forthcoming. There was no sense that we ha were having uh, leadership that was bringing the city together to take on what the business community saw as an enormous crisis that really was an all hands on deck moment where we had to call in all the assets of the city. And so the letter, the public letter was really intended as a, if you will, a shot across the bow to mm -hmm. say, you know, we offered to help, we believe in the future of the city, but we don't think we're gonna get there if we don't all come together and have a clear vision and a clear plan for how we're gonna tackle these enormous problems. So, and starting with most immediately those areas that are city services, security, the police situation, the school situation, sanitation, which garbage had piled up in communities throughout the city and the central business district. So just basic municipal services, 
for people to come back to the office and for employers to ask their people to come back to the office, we have to see that the city is being well-managed even with the fiscal constraints. And, and the fiscal constraints haven't hit us, just like the economic crisis isn't hit us yet. We aren't, haven't yet seen huge budget cuts, which may be down the road. Well, that letter was followed by one on September 14th uh, to President Trump urging the president to secure funding for public transit and local governments that are essential to the economic recovery of the country's largest metropolitan area. So my question to you is, do you think the federal government ultimately will provide funding to these initiatives? And if not, what do you think the alternative is? Well, honestly, I don't think there's an alternative. I think that mass transit and, and again, New York City and our metropolitan region that's served by mass transit represents 11% of the national economy. They need us and uh, they need us to be strong in order to bring back America's economy. So there's number one, and that's the case we were really trying to make is that uh, this is a, of national interest. You know, I was on a call this morning with our counterparts in London. The UK government sees London as their key asset for their whole economy. And they, in, they invest and support their transit and essential services we don't have that same proprietary interest from the federal government in New York City. We have to fight for what we get, but hopefully uh, there'll be a recognition and the fact that the transit system is so important. It's taken a huge hit during the COVID in terms of their revenues. We will not be able to proceed with modernization of the transit system that we had 50 billion was uh, committed for going forward for this five-year plan that begins in January for capital improvements in mm -hmm. the transit system and commuter rail and subways. That will not be there if we don't get some of the 12 billion that the, has, uh, that the system has lost this year. We will not be able to support that capital program. So we're gonna really have to work together to make that happen. And that will not happen without federal support. We can't when we've got close to a million people unemployed or at risk of losing their jobs, we can't raise transit fares we have a already, we're the highest taxed city uh, in the country. How are we going to raise taxes to support this yet again? We've got, we really need federal aid. We send far more to Washington than we get back in the $20 billion area. More, most recently with the loss of state and federal, state and local tax deductibility from our federal tax payments. That's been, it's a, like another 14 billion in more money that New York taxpayers are sending to Washington every year. So we really need federal assistance on transit and that's why we sent that letter. And when do you think we need it by? Well, if we're gonna keep the, uh, the MTA from having to borrow for operating costs, we need it by before the end of the year or at least some portion of it before the end of the year. So the clock is ticking. It is indeed. Moving on to the most recent letter that was sent on September 18th to both Governor Cuomo and again to Mayor Bill de Blasio, um, it was to convene a multi-sector leadership initiative which can call upon the broadest possible range of resources and expertise to develop plans, policies, and implementation strategies for how cities will overcome the challenges created by the pandemic and reemerge stronger, fairer, and more resilient than ever. 
So can you elaborate a little bit on this proposed initiative that the letter was implying and, and what feedback that has received? Well, there again, it's been slightly delayed by the resurgence of the COVID, which has distracted both the state and the city as we try to make sure that we don't have another outbreak of the disease. But the point of that is really to say, number one, New York is was the first to a city in America to suffer the attack of the COVID. We have the most experience in dealing with it and, and in general in dealing with recovery from disasters and that we ought to be building relationships and networks. If we're gonna make our case to Washington about the support we need, we're gonna to have to make that with cities across America that have subsequently had similar devastation, not quite as bad as here, but have had devastation from the COVID. Our unemployment rate in New York is twice that of any place of the nation. So the impact has been greater here, but we need, we need allies, we need partners, and we together as cities should be lobbying Washington for the kind of support we're going to need to rebuild our economies and our education system, et cetera. So that's, that was kind of the effort. And we have seen response in terms of a couple of things. At the city level, we worked with the City Economic Development Corporation to launch a small business resource center. That's mm -hmm. a place where small businesses can come for all kinds of support, whether it's public or private funding, whether it's technical assistance, technology upgrades, etc. So we've got that launched a couple of weeks ago. And we hope that that will be a one-stop shop for small businesses that just need help and that we can get to them. We're working with the five borough chambers of commerce to deliver those resources. They've got boots on the ground out there that are working with their local constituencies to figure out how to get that aid to them. So that's a tangible result. And a second is the, the governor has put together a couple of groups that are working on how we reimagine the economy in New York, what we're going to do to bring jobs back in new ways and new industries, expanding on some existing industries. So that effort is getting started with the Empire State Development Corporation. We feel like there is movement there. As I say, though, the distraction of the resurgence of the COVID has really put everything else is in second place right now. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about development. You know, I know you were the keynote for several of the Long Island City Partnership Summits, and Long Island City and the entire city were put in national spotlight when chosen as one of the two cities nationally for Amazon's headquarters, followed by their decision to then pull out. And you were a proponent for Amazon to build their headquarters in Long Island City. Um, and I assume the reversal of Amazon's decision to locate there um, was a big disappointment. So I'd love for you to explain why and share with us how you felt the advantages of them coming to New York City, which was under the bid that New York City submitted, outweighed what opponents felt were unfair incentives for one of America's most profitable companies. Well, the argument over Amazon was unfortunate. They represented, that development represented somewhere between 24,000 and 40,000 new jobs for New York City. And they were jobs that would have been accessible to a range of New Yorkers and would have been the basis for new community college training programs, et cetera, which is what they're doing in Maryland, where they ended up going. So Crystal City, wherever that is, it's not, it's not New, New York. York. <laughs> it's not New York, exactly. So from our standpoint, 
those jobs were important. It was important that Long Island City stood to really benefit. It kind of, the, the project was located in a way that it sort of brought a center and, and knit Long Island City together in a way that's kind of needed. There are big gaps there in kind of the community infrastructure. And they've had a lot of big towers. There hasn't been the kind of, of centering for that community that I think Amazon would have provided a, a project that size would have provided to the community. But most important is that it was a, and, and, the, and the Amazon was provided benefits in terms of tax abatement that totaled about $3 billion. But those weren't state dollars that were being given to Amazon. That was about 10% of the 30 billion or so dollars that Amazon was going to bring in taxes to New York. So it was simply a, a tax incentive, a reduction in the huge new tax benefits that Amazon was going to pay to the state of New York. Without Amazon, those dollars are not available. It's not like you can turn around and build schools or fix transit with those dollars, they won't be here unless Amazon comes. It was sort of a false argument that was brought by the opponents of Amazon who were largely from political interests saying it was, it was part of what we've sadly seen develop in our city as an anti-growth political effort that has been a response to fears and many of them legitimate fears of displacement by low-income families as values and costs and rents in the city have gone up. And there are ways to solve that problem, stopping growth, stopping development, stopping new tax revenues coming into the city is not the way to solve that problem. We've got to be much more proactive. I would say that it was, it was on all of us that support a balanced growth agenda that it wasn't clear to the communities and we didn't make a better case for why this was a benefit to people. It wasn't something that they should be afraid of. The opposition was much better at the use of social media in, uh, and demonstrations and hanging Jeff Bezos in effigy as a pinata. They were better at, uh, in negativity. And it's very frightening because the same thing happened just last month with Industry City in Brooklyn with them pulling their rezoning. And in both cases, these companies were driven out of New York by what I would say is, is a minority of the population in both communities, but one that knows how to make their case in the political arena. And we haven't developed a, a, good, a good case alternative. Although Industry City had a very good case. They've been there five years. They've worked closely with the community. They've created lots of jobs. Uh, they have great credibility, great leadership. So that was, that was a situation where, again, it's just this fear that's emerged in the last few years as affordability has become a bigger and bigger problem in the city. And we have not done a good job of convincing people that we can work together to fix that problem and make people feel secure in their home, in their job, and that they're not going to be driven out. What do you think it takes to, to send that message out? I mean, is it sharing more numbers? Numbers, you know, don't lie. They're not political. 
in terms of showing, you know, if you uh, do this project, it will provide this much more housing. I mean, what do you think can no, be- No, because I don't think they believe, they don't believe the numbers. So I think it's more having people as we did in the recovery from the crisis of the 1970s. In the 1980s and 70s and 80s, we really developed a very strong infrastructure of community-based organizations that were directly engaged in the plans for their neighborhoods and, and were participating, uh, developing housing or partnering with private developers to bring housing on board, marketing the housing, uh, working on economic development projects, creating the bids and, and setting up the, uh, the business improvement districts and setting up uh, neighborhood districts, shopping districts, supporting their local merchants. We had a very active community development movement that we haven't nurtured. And a lot of that was federally funded as well under uh, the various federal programs, community development block grants. That support for local community development activity has really thinned out in the last two decades. And we need to resurrect that. And I'm hoping that a new federal administration, whether it's the re-election of the current president or the Biden team, I'm hoping that we can make a case that once again, from Washington through the, that the cities, this is one of the things cities can do together, can make the case we need strong community-based organizations to be at the table in the planning. Those are the advocates for growth, for balanced growth that we, we're missing today. We've lost that community development infrastructure. We need their voice at the table. We need their advocacy. And I think that if we can bring that back, the politics of anti-development, anti-real estate, anti-growth will be defeated by people on the ground. Thank you for sharing that insight. It's very powerful. What is your best example um, in New York City, particularly of building strong partnerships between businesses, communities, and government? And what would you like to see come together to get through this period of time? Well, there are many examples, as I say, the, the renaissance of the city's neighborhoods in the 80s and 90s really was built, done through public-private partnerships. The city and state had very little money to put into that effort. They put in land, they had free land, they had free buildings because through tax foreclosure, they'd taken back all this property. So the city was able to con contribute land and buildings. The private sector, the banks and community development financing efforts really raised private money. The low-income housing tax credits were financed through corporate tax credit contributions. So the corporations participated with uh, through the nonprofit organizations uh, that were doing low-income housing. The partnership for New York City, our program was to build home ownership housing, two and three family homes, condos and co-ops that were priced for affordability to local residents. So they had a permanent stake in their neighborhoods as homeowners. We did during those, during those 20 years, there were probably 50,000 units of owner-occupied housing developed in those communities as kind of the anchor for bringing back a middle class. And most of the people who bought those homes 
were people that moved out of NYCHA, out of public housing, had been tenants, and for the first time they had an equity stake. And I would point out that as values have improved over the succeeding 20 years since that time, the benefits have gone directly to those communities. We had strong minority uh, entrepreneurship programs where builders and developers of the housing included a number of minority owned firms. And that was a, an important part of the effort to make sure they were hot and they were hiring local residents. So that infrastructure and partnering with community-based nonprofit groups where there were 50 or 60 strong community-based nonprofit groups throughout the city and across all five boroughs, that infrastructure has really struggled since because they were funded through those housing programs and those partnerships. And uh, as I say, the banks were taking the risk, the builders were taking the risks, and they were willing to do that because they believed in the future of the city and they were partnering with the communities. They weren't fighting with each other. Well, Catherine, it's been a pleasure having you on Schneps Connects and getting your perspective. And I, I really appreciate you being with us. Well, thank you, Josh, for the opportunity. It was fun to reminisce and to think about, not so fun to think about the challenges ahead of us. Well, hopefully we will overcome. We're a strong city. I'm sure we will. I have every confidence. Thank you. Thank you. Make sure to subscribe to Schneps Connects wherever you get your podcast or stream them online at schnepsmedia.com. <laughs>